John chapter 2, we're in a series preaching through the gospel of John, the fourth gospel today in the New Testament, verse by verse, in chapter 2 today. It's a typical American family. They're on their way home from church. They're in the car driving down the road. Dad's a little grumpy because he felt the sermon was too long. Mom thought the worship was too loud. And the daughter, who's a music major in college, said it seemed like the singers were flat. It was quite, it was quiet for just a moment. And little Billy in the back seat says, well, you have to admit, this is a good show for a quarter. Somebody just said, ouch. That's my feeling exactly about that one. You know what can happen at times in the church is we become commentators on the service, we become worship connoisseurs, we're more involved in evaluating what's going on, the rights and the wrongs, this should have happened, that didn't happen, and we allow the enemy to twist up our mind, our thoughts and what takes place, direct our focus on other things, uh, that God really inherently cares about something greater. And one of the things that God is very passionate about is he's passionate about the environment in which he has worshipped. Today, we're headed into some very unexpected series of events in the life of Jesus' early ministry for the next couple of weeks. And so with that in mind, we're going to go to John chapter 2 and verse 12 today. And it says, after this, he, that's Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip up cords, he drove them out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And, and Jesus answered to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That's very powerful. I want to make five observations that will help set this up in what Jesus is dealing with in this very unexpected moment that day. I want to begin by explaining a few things. If you just hang with me for just a moment before we get into those five observations as we look at a picture of Herod's temple. The temple that was in the use at Jesus' time was this temple. Many times when we read about the temple, we think of a building much like this church today. We think about going into various areas or whatever it may be. This is the actual temple building, but the whole area would be called the temple. When we're reading scripture, what we have to do is we have to look at this and we have to discern what is being talked about, whether it's actual the building, the temple, or is it talking about the whole area of the temple? It says, Jesus was teaching in the temple. There was never a service in the temple like we're having a service today here. That was 
And what was taking place at that time was for the high priest to go in and offer incense. There, there wasn't teaching inside, and John clarifies and says this in his teaching, that Jesus was there, and in Solomon's colonnade is where this was taking place. Those columns that you see inside the picture are what's called Solomon's colonnade. The size of the inner flat part that you see in the middle is a size of about 15 football fields together. It's a massive complex. There are different courts that are around the outside. In the colonnade, there was a shop where you could purchase animals for sacrifice, pigeons and goats and doves, sheep and oxen, and then take it to the priests for sacrifice. And it was designed for people to come and worship The issue, if you look inside of this, you understand, and Jesus brings clarity, is not the buying and the selling of animals in the temple, because it was designed for that purpose. But the issue was the high priests were trying to buy into the right to become high priests. And the issue came that they were cheating the worshipers. So the going rate for a pair of doves was a dollar at the temple, it would cost you $10. If you brought your lamb and the priest had to inspect the lamb and determine if it was approved or not approved because it had to be without spot or without blemish, the Bible says, the priest at the time would reject the lambs that people were bringing and say the lambs were not good enough. So what happens is you need to buy our lamb. So you're going to pay now five to 10 times the value of your lamb, and they're going to buy your lamb from you at a very low price, and then they're going to recycle it. So you see the problem that Jesus is dealing with inside of this passage. Then as people come from all different places, the Roman Empire, they have different coinage. And so all of this, they bring it, not all of it was pure gold or pure silver, so they needed to standardize the currency that was being brought in so that they're not getting cheated. So they said, you've got to exchange your money to have use of the temple money, and their exchange rate was 25%, so they were scalping the people of their money. You know, there are times in the church, and growing up in the church, I've heard this, where people come in and see the church selling t-shirts or apparel and say, oh, the money changers are in the temple. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that's, you know, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, and that's not the point at all what's being said here. The point is, though, if we were selling apparel at an exorbitant price so that you couldn't buy any other apparel anywhere else because our apparel is the only swag out there, and when you tithe, you can't pay in U.S. currency, you kind of have to pay in Abundant Life Church monopoly money, and you have to exchange your money, and we're going to jack up the exchange rate. This is what Jesus is talking about inside of this passage that we can get a full understanding today. He comes in the temple, he comes in, and he is very angry. Forget the picture that you have of Jesus that he looks like Mr. Rogers, all right? I want you to know that. He's Bear grills. he's a man. And uh, listen, he can take on any situation in 30 years. He's been a construction worker. He, he knows and he is strong that you realize after he was beaten, before he was crucified, he carried the cross beam, 150 to 250 pounds, through the streets of Jerusalem, preparing to be crucified. He comes into the temple, he gets some leather, makes a whip, and he drives people out. And this happens twice in Jesus' ministry. It happens at the beginning, and it happens at the end. Some people think this is the only time. That's not true. It happens at the beginning, happens at the end, and it's told that way in the Gospels. And this is the Messiah coming in, and during the religious situation of his day, he is declaring something very powerful and strong. 
He's declaring it is finished. Understand this, that who we worship and how we worship and what we worship is absolutely important to God, if you heard me say yes. God cares about the place where he is worshiped. God only, not only cares about what happens in this place, but he cares about the condition of our heart. Matter of fact, the most important thing that's happening upon this campus today is what is going on in the condition of every single heart in this place. Whether it's children, whether it's young people, whether it's adults, whoever you may be, the most important thing is what's taking place inside of your heart today. And he's very passionate about how he is worshiped. That's what he's saying in this. So five observations on worship that can become rotten if we will allow it to in our lives. Number one, worship becomes rotten when other things become more important than God. That's how it can become very rotten very quickly. Other things are more important than God. Verse 12, after this, we know Jesus went out to Capernaum. What happens inside of this is John has given us insight into the very first year of the ministry He's visiting Capernaum, and eventually we learn Capernaum becomes the place of his home base of operations. Peter has a home there. It is a noteworthy city that's taking place on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He has his mother, his brothers, his disciples are with him, and they have left Cana where the wedding feast has taken place, and they stayed there for a few days. And it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the feast that celebrates when God delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple, not the sanctuary auditorium, the temple is a very large area. Understand this. The temple at Passover not just has what's normally there, 10, 20,000 people. It swells at this time of year for this feast to over 250,000 people that are in the temple. And Jesus comes into the area, and he puts together a cord and a whip, and he has this divine fury that is unleashed. And he is emptying out this whole entire area. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. They were sitting there. It's very crowded. And he's making this whip out of cords and he drove them out. And he said he poured out the the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables and he told those who were selling pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make it about all these other things because really what he's saying in here, and if you look at this, the worship of God was not even secondary. They were concerned about making money and ripping people off. See, worship can become rotten in our lives when other things, even potentially good things like even a lamb to worship, but in those, if those things become primary and knowing God becomes secondary, then something is wrong with our worship. We could even come into this place and get so caught up in our services that we forget why we are serving him. We can serve and we can lead and we can sing and I could stand behind this table and preach for the wrong reasons. Rather than being dialed in to the one whose presence in this place is that we celebrate and we invite to come to worship and we have to remember who this is about first and foremost, rather than coming into the place of worship and grease the next business deal down the road or maybe criticize somebody else while we are worshiping and be distracted by other things or what somebody did wrong to us, 
We need to put him first. How many of you know that when we put God first, he'll take care of the rest? That's kingdom come. Amen? We are in the presence of the one who is worthy today. Second, worship becomes rotten when we are oblivious to the people who are coming to God. The disciples, they're watching this divine whirlwind go through the temple In verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. You understand this, that God is passionate about his house. He really is. The place that he's worshiped, about what happens, what takes place in his name, that he deeply cares, and so much so that it consumes him. He has such zeal. And it says it's written, my house, in in Matthew 21, 13, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He wants us today to call on his name so that he might work not only in our life, but in other people's lives that are here. See, God established the nation of Israel so that the world might see a people so uniquely blessed by God and in turn say, you are blessed There is grace, and they would say, I want to know the God that you serve. That's how powerful worship is. You know, one of the aspects of our worship is that people would see the favor and sense the presence of the Lord, and people would have an encounter with God. I don't know about you, but the most important thing that I'm concerned about today and every service that we come about I know there's a talk, and we pray into this service all week with our pastors and the services that are carried on with children and with youth and with students and young adults, is that every person would have an encounter with God, and if we make that that our most important goal, that's what will last, and that's what will matter the most, amen? That we would have an encounter with the Lord, that you and I would say before we leave this place, We are different. We are more like Jesus than ever before. That's why we come, to have an encounter with him. So sometimes what can happen is we can treat the transformation of a person's life like it doesn't matter, but it should matter to every single one of us if our worship is right before the Father. Number three, worship becomes rotten when doubt replaces faith. You know, I was thinking back this last week in preparation for this message, You ever done something in growing up that you look back and say, why did I do that? I mean, really, have you? You ever done that? Oh, yeah, I've done that many times in my own life. I was reminded of a time where uh, I was eight years of age living in the Midwest, and uh, I went to a neighbor's house, friend of mine, his name was Alan Aldridge, and I went there, and we got bored, and we went to his basement, and we were down there, and, you know, we were down there, we didn't have, we were just so bored, we had nothing to do, we looked, and here his mother had all these canned goods so beautifully laid out uh, on, a, on a shelf down there, and I had this bright idea, let's open these cans. So, Alan Aldridge and I were down there opening the cans, prying them open with our teeth, you know, opening them up, we begin to open all of these cans on this shelf. 
crazy enough. And then we said, well, what are we going to do with them now that they're open? Well, I had a brilliant idea. Let's go get a container and we're just going to pour all of this inside of that. So we poured all of those canned goods that his mother worked really hard on into this container. Well, what are we going to do with the container now that it's all inside of there? Uh, We're going to have to go and we slid it around the room and put it behind a door. We, you know, like it's going to go away, right? Well, it was a few weeks later, my mom and dad, I remember my mom and dad were sitting in the living room and they, John, you need to come in here. And uh, they said, listen, uh, what were you doing a few weeks ago at Alan Aldridge's house in the basement? I don't know. Well, Alan's mom began to smell such a stench in the upstairs of the house. (laughs) She went down to the basement trying to find where it was coming from. And you can't make this stuff up, can you? I mean, some of you are like, what's what's wrong with you, kid? (laughs) And uh, she went down there to discover this. I mean, it was a terrible mess. I mean, something that was supposed to turn out for so much good, you know, was ruined by something that I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it was one of those moments where my dad called me in the back room and bent me over the little tyke's toy box and gave me a whipping. And before he said it, this is going to hurt me. Yeah. The crazy things we do growing up, right? I'll never forget it. You know, things we can become rotten in our lives when when even doubt replaces faith. So the Jews, John's a Jew. He's saying in verse 13, Jesus is a Jew. This is not an attack on Jews. This is the rulers that oppose Jesus, and that's the phrase, said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is like, where did you get this authority, Jesus? I mean, by cleaning out the temple, he is proclaiming this. I am the Messiah. I am now here, and Jesus is saying, the one you have waited for is here now. The Messiah, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, the Savior has come to rescue the people of his days. It's miraculous. Here's a sign with a purpose and with power. That's what we say what signs are. They're a miracle with purpose and with power, and they're watching the power of God in a tangible way, and they're choosing to doubt and, and, you know, I understand that many people have kind of a prove-it mentality, like when it comes to God. It's like it has to pass the litmus test in their mind to determine if God is real, rather than a simple-minded faith. That we understand this, that Hebrew says, without faith, it's impossible to what? So if you have no faith in God, it's impossible to please him. We understand this. So if we will believe, we understand through Scripture, it says, then we will see the works of God. Fourth principle, worship becomes rotten when ritual replaces relationship. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days. I'm going to raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Jesus is coming into the temple and he's removed the sacrificial animals. Why? Well, there's a greater thing that's going on also besides them uh, charging exorbitant amount of money and cheating the worshipers. It's because there is no longer a need for sacrifice. He is going to take care of this now. The temple is not needed anymore. It's not primarily the passion of the Jewish people. The Temple Mount, we understand, is sacred in the Jewish life and in their identity. And Jesus says, there's no need for this sacrifice anymore. You don't need a temple anymore. Why? Because you have me. And you will find God inside of me. And so Revelation 21, 22 says this, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The worship of God is no longer going to center on a building or sacrifice. It's going to center on me, Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the sacrifice. All of the ritual is done. What he cares about, more importantly than anything else, is our relationship with him. We live in him. He lives in us. And now we understand in the New Testament, it says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he now lives inside of you and me, and that when we invite Christ in, we invite him in to take up residence inside of us. It's no longer going to be one place where God is, but God living in us and living in him 24-7 all year long. Long. This is the greater understanding that he is trying to give the people of his day, and it blew their mindset. And finally, worship becomes rotten when dead faith is confused with saving faith. Do you know this, that there is a faith that doesn't save? We can have faith in some well-intentioned things, programs, people, but that doesn't mean it's a saving faith for sure. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was inside of man. Remember in the prologue, as we started off the first chapter of John, in the beginning was the word, right? The Logos, the reason for your life. He is God. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the disciples say, you are the Son of God. And then we come, as we did last week, to the wedding at Cana of Galilee. And he does this divine act without the use of time and without grapes. And he makes the wine. And he does it instantaneously. It is a sign. It is a miracle. Now we come. And he comes. Jesus, he's on the scene. And he knows now what's in a person's Jesus doesn't have to look on the outside at all, ever. He has the ability, the divine aspect of who he is, to cut to the chase and knows who are his. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew Judas was not a true believer. He understood that there is a belief that does not save and and many people are resting in a belief today that has no ability to save their soul. 
understanding that we get from Scripture is if, if you have the root of salvation, you will have the fruit of salvation. Isn't that true? If you have the root that's properly in him, what will come out of us is the fruit of our salvation, that we will bear fruit. So listen, if you're a Christian today, there should be enough evidence to find you guilty as charged. Are you with me? There should be enough evidence in your life because that's what a disciple really means. There's no such thing as a hidden disciple. That's not even biblical. An invisible disciple in the world that we live in. No, there should be enough evidence in your life and in my life to convict us guilty as charged. They're a person that lives for Jesus no matter what. Amen? We understand that as we look at this story, there should be enough evidence in us to say, Jesus, you are Lord in me. My question is, have you had an encounter with Jesus where he's transformed and he's changed you? Really, I don't want to come in here on a Sunday morning and go through worship and just go through the routine. I don't think you do either. I think you have better things to do than just come in here and go through the routine and leave here unchanged. But that as we come, we really want God to change our hearts because God sees our hearts. And that we understand Next week, as we come into chapter 3, verse 1, Nicodemus comes on the scene. He's the ruler of the Jews. And here, his man who looks on the outside like he has it all together, he's a leader. He is revered, but he is lost. He does not know God. Worship's rotten if it's a dead faith. That type of faith can't save anyone. So what is the condition of your heart today? Only you can answer for your heart. If you're a believer, how did you come into this place today? What is it that motivated you to do that? Because dead faith cannot save our lives. It never has and never will. But knowing this, that the heart is so important to the Father, that's why he says, now this is how we should worship God, that we understand that everything flows out of our heart, right? the good and the bad. And that's why he addresses the heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the heart of the issue. That's what God's trying to get to. That's what Jesus, that's what he came to accomplish upon this earth. It was mind-blowing. There's no need of these sacrifices anymore. I am the ultimate sacrifice. You keep trying to just cover up your stuff, your sin, your junk. He said, I've come and I can set you free. And who the sun sets free is free indeed. And that's why I'm here. I'm on the scene. I'm going to take care of this once and for all. If you will just trust me and there would be a saving faith in my name, I can do that to you. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you today as we come in this amazing passage that we learn again of why you came for us, Lord. Lord, that we would not be just stuck in our sin, our guilt, our shame, the lies of the past, the enemy that tries to tell us things about us that are not true, but Lord, that there's a saving faith in the name of Jesus, and Lord, that you want to encounter us today. And Father, our hearts say to you, we want to encounter you today, Lord. We want to encounter you, Lord, new today. 
Lord, and uh, revitalize our relationship that we have with you, that you would do a mighty work that, Lord, it would not be a dead faith, but it's inside of a saving faith that we can have with you, Lord. Thank you for that today. Lord, thank you that you are our redeemer and savior, Lord, and you want to become our friend. And so that's the type of God we've come to encounter today together. Lord, I pray that, Lord Jesus, transform our hearts, Lord Jesus. Let it be a sign to us. It's a miracle with power and purpose, Lord, to be changed in your presence. Only you can do that, Lord. Only you can. And so, Lord, we are thankful for that today. And we, we give you the glory. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.